Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello and welcome to this event hosted by the RSA. Today's conversation features Baroness Catherine Ashton in conversation with Sir Robert Cooper as they share stories from their time working in diplomacy in the last 20 years. Before I hand you over to our speakers, let me first introduce them. So Baroness Catherine Ashton served as the European Union's first High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, holding the role from 2009 to 2014. She was the first female EU Commissioner for Trade. She is also a life peer and the former leader of the House of Lords. She is also the author of a new book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. This book details her experiences as the High Representative for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, and themes and stories from the book will work as the subject of the event today. The conversation will be led by Sir Robert Cooper, who worked for the EU High Representatives Javier Solana and Catherine Ashton until 2012. Before that, he served as the British Diplomatic Service abroad in Tokyo, Brussels and Bonn, and at home as the Head of Policy Planning Staff and Head of the Defence and Overseas Secretariat in the Cabinet Office. Before we get started, a bit of housekeeping. So if you're watching along live on YouTube, please do get involved in the conversation and share any thoughts or comments in the live chat. If you're on Twitter, you can use the hashtag RSA Diplomacy. So that's all from me, and I'll now hand you over to Robert and Catherine. Enjoy. I mean, the, the strange thing about the European Union is that it was, in a way, it was not the European, the original concept of Europe was actually intended to abolish foreign policy, because until then, foreign policy in Europe had been a matter of people forming alliances against each other. And um, uh, uh, what changed everything, I mean, there was some foreign policy activity, but it was never very significant. Um, uh, What changed everything was the wars in the Balkans. because there was a massive, there was these terrible wars going on. And the European Union, which claimed to be an organization bringing peace, was totally unable to do anything about it. And it was out of that that your job came. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one of the things that was so important in creating a foreign policy service was thinking about what I would call Europe's backyard that the importance of the transatlantic relationship was in part about demonstrating that the European Union was capable of dealing with problems that Mm. were literally on its doorstep Mm. and not relying on Mm. the US. US key Mm. partner, crucial, important, especially we see that now with Ukraine, but that the European Union and Europe itself was able to address some of those problems, either lingering problems from the post-Balkan wars or other crises that evolved and emerged over the time. But with the, with the Balkan wars, um, there are two famous quotations from the beginning of the Balkan wars. One is James Baker, really one of the great secretaries yeah. of state in the US. James Baker saying, we don't have a dog in that fight. And uh, the other is Jacques Pouze 
saying, unfortunately, it's the only thing he's remembered for. This is the hour of Europe. Well, it was definitely not the hour of Europe. It was an hour when Europe proved itself completely incapable. Uh, and as I say, that's, that's why the whole structure with you at the top of it was invented. And the great thing about how they invented it was that it remained the responsibility of individual countries to determine where they stood. And that was important, yeah. I think, yeah. in terms of that intergovernmental, as we call it, way of working. Yeah. But they would come to Brussels with the desire to get allies, yeah. to get support for issues yeah. that concerned each of them, yeah. and also to come together on issues that, of course, affected Europe as a whole. So in, in my time, the setting up of the service, it was challenging, it was difficult. But if you remember, the Foreign Affairs Council was a place where serious conversations were had yes. and where we never failed to reach a conclusion. We never voted yes. in those five years. Yes. We never failed to get to a conclusion that created a European position mm -hmm. upon which I could mm -hmm. act and we I could mean, work. Personally, <coughs> I worked for the British Diplomatic Service for a long time and then for the EU. I like working for the EU much more. Um, uh, you had, to, you had to work hard in the EU to get a common position, to, to get a policy. Um, whereas in Britain it's easy, the Foreign Secretary says something and that's your policy. But in Europe you've got to get agreement on it. Yeah. And that's often a hard slog. But when you've got an agreement on it, this is a very powerful machine with enormous possibilities. I think that's right. And you know, one of the things that was very obvious to me was that if you had again, in those days, 28 countries around a room, you had knowledge and expertise yeah. based on yeah. either geography or politics or yeah. history that meant everyone in the room could get the, the sort of the benefit, if you like, of, of that experience being put forward. And you've got lots of different angles because mm. um, if, you're, um, if you're Greece, you look at the world from a different perspective than if you're Finland. That's right, but, but it meant that you know, between Arctic policy and what was happening in the southern Mediterranean, what happened in the Western Balkans, what was happening, of yes. course, in Ukraine, Russia, um, all around, including yeah. you know, our relationships with nations as far afield as China and even down to Australia, all of these relationships and issues and concerns and, and ways of, of kind of coming together were so important to the, to the Council. Yeah. And if you got an agreement, it was always, if you got a policy, got to have a policy, it was always down there in writing, being negotiated very carefully, and you could stick to it. Um, and that meant that you were much more important than you were when you were a national state. Uh, I mean, there were a couple of occasions when I got calls from the State Department of somebody saying, well done, you've got a policy on this now. Um, I think... The work of the ambassadors, I, I often say to people that, that if you were an ambassador to Brussels, your job was to find an agreement. You know, most ambassadors yeah. go out to represent their country and to stick to their country's position through thick and thin, to be that country based somewhere else. Whereas in Brussels, your whole raison d'etre is to find an agreement, yes. to find a solution. Yes obviously to push your own position as a nation. Yeah. But in a sense, failure 
as a diplomat is when you're not able to reach a conclusion. Yes. And it's the only place in the world, I think, yeah. where that's true. If you don't have an agreement, you don't have a policy, and you're rubbish. And, and that's, I think, yes. unique to, to Brussels and, and incredibly yes. important because right. of that. Well, in theory, it could be true of the UN, but unfortunately, it's because of the difficulty of getting agreements in the UN that the UN is, is, is not a player most of the time. Well, in the experience that I had, it was to Brussels that we would bring issues to be resolved. Yeah. And it is the modus operandi is precisely that. Coming, I mean, it must have been a it must have been a shock um, when you discovered what the job was that you were doing um, uh, to find, for example, that you've got a military staff underneath you. As I talk about in the book, you know, there's a whole sort of um, set of things that I've laid out about how I ended up in the role. But you're absolutely right that one of the, the things that happens if you're not expecting to be in a position is your knowledge of what it entails is much less. And I certainly did do the work of looking at all of the different things it would contain as a role. Not least because it was the merging of two big jobs, one in the Commission, one yeah. in the Council, yeah. and then adding in the role of the rotating presidency, the fact that every six months a different country would chair all of the different committees and take responsibility for many of the issues that concerned the European Union. Well, instead of them chairing it, I was chairing it. And that of itself meant you were responsible for the agendas, for the coordination, for the work of the member states and so on and so forth. So there was a lot coming together. And yes, you're absolutely right. When yeah. people arrived to tell me that we had military missions, yeah. that was a surprise. And you arrived to tell me that, of course, one of the functions was going to be to take on the role of coordinating and chairing the Iran negotiations. Yes. And yes. that happened, I that think, on my second day. The, I mean, maybe I could just say one word about the Iran negotiations. Where did they, where did they come from? The answer was <coughs> um, they were a kind of an apology um, for Iraq. Um, uh, the EU had um, no discussions and no position on Iraq. Um, and that was because um, British, French, and Germans were more or less not speaking to each other on the subject. Um, uh, and I recall at least one occasion in which they tried, somebody tried to raise Iraq at a meeting of heads of government, and there was complete silence. Um, and um, uh, Iraq was an all-round disaster, um, more for those who were involved then for those who weren't, but it wasn't, it wasn't good for anybody. Um, and it was, um, uh, it was the fear that there might be another Iraq um, led initially the British, French, and Germans um, who were uh, tracking um, the Iranian nuclear program um, through intelligence sources mostly uh, to get together and say, um, uh, actually, this is what, what Iraq wasn't. Iraq didn't have a nuclear program. Um, I was pretending it did, but it didn't have one. Whereas Iran did have a real nuclear program that was going forward. Um, and the risk, uh, and it still exists, the, the risk of a situation in which a country in the Middle East has got nuclear weapons 
um, it's something one ought to be terrified about. Um, and that's where the negotiations originally came from. Um, as I say, it was a kind of an apology for Iraq. And by the time I picked them up, of course, the, the E3, as they became, the, the, the yeah. Britain, France and Germany, had been joined by the plus three, which was the other three members of the Security Council, China, the United States and Russia. And we had this team of six nations yeah. under a UN mandate with us playing the kind of coordination and chairing role. Actually, uh, with you it together. playing the chairing role because um, it, wasn't just the, it was, wasn't just the E3, it was the E3 slash EU. Um, because at some early stage in the Iran negotiations, when they were not going anywhere very much, um, somebody in the council meeting said to your predecessor, or no, it wasn't actually to your predecessor, they said to the rotating presidency, look, we, we get these briefings uh, every month from Britain, France, or Germany about what's going on, and they're very important and very interesting, but wouldn't it be a good idea for Javier, Javier Solano, that is, um, to join them um, uh, so that we were all represented there? Um, and that was a formula which actually worked very well. I think it was really important that the EU was there for an, a number of reasons, actually, Robert, looking back. One was that it meant there was a kind of coordination function automatically built in. And when that came to the the pressure side of the equation in terms of you know wanting dialogue with Iran but also having pressure. Yeah. Being able to keep all of the member states of the European Union together led by the three who could mm. explain and mm. describe to the others why this was an important issue but because you also had the EU yes. um, in one of my predecessors, as it were, because I had several in that sense yes. because of their jobs coming yes. together, then um, it meant that there was an understanding um, that there was a deeper function going on, that it yeah. was all of the EU member yeah. states, while accepting that the key front-runner role in terms of member states was going to be played by the three who'd begun the conversation but also, of course, two of them were part of the permanent membership of the Security Council, which is why when you talk about the E3 plus 3 in America, you talk about the, the P5, P5 plus 1, one. permanent yes. 5 members yeah. plus yeah. Germany. Yeah. It's 6 either way. Yeah. Um, and those countries working together, I think, was a crucial, crucial part linked it to the EU. But it was also, it was also linked to... Uh, the, <coughs> the lucky coincidence of a reasonable government in Iran um, and a government in the US ready to take risks. That was to say, um, uh, Rouhani in Iran um, and uh, uh, Obama in the US. I think there was no question that having spent two years, uh, and you played a role in that with the previous government, Right, um, and with Mr. Jalili. With Mr. Jalili and with the Ahmadinejad government, the yes. move to President Rouhani was really significant. And the obvious yeah. example of that is the fact that when um, Zarif was appointed foreign minister and given the task of taking on the negotiations, it was August, 
and we had an interim agreement by November. Yes. There are two things that I always say to people about that, and, and I explore in the book, I think, a, a bit, is, first of all, that it is about having the people who want to have an agreement. Yes. And President Rouhani had yes. come in on a platform of wanting a stronger economy, yes. which required him to address the issue of sanctions. Uh, and I think, um, secondly, that we had a process in place that meant he could simply slot into a process that currently existed. We weren't inventing no, a process. No, we'd, we'd actually worked through the issues and done all of the technical Yeah, and, work. We, and we knew who should be in the room and where the yeah. room should be. I mean, yeah. you know, one of the things about negotiation that's so important and that I often say to students is, you know, get the process sorted out. Who's going to be in the room? What's the role of the people in the room? Mm. Where are they going to sit? Where are you going to meet? Which country are you going to meet? In which place are you going to be? Because negotiations, as you know very well, historically can get stuck on who's going to sit around the table. Well, the other thing that, the other thing that, um, uh, <coughs> that ought to be mentioned um, uh, was the uh, US back channel. Um, in fact, Bill Burns' memoirs are called The Back Channel. They are. Um, and I don't think that there's any serious negotiation that ever takes place or ever reaches a conclusion without there being either a back channel or a walk in the woods or something like that, as well as a formal negotiation. Uh, there is almost always some much more risky conversations which take place more privately. It's worth re remembering that in the negotiations with Iran, that all of the other countries were able to meet bilaterally yes. with Iran, yeah. in Tehran, in their home countries, whatever. It was impossible between the US and Iran for all of the political reasons going back in the recent history. So the only way that they were going to be able to talk was at that point going to have to be very, very quietly. Yes. And of necessity, when the formal talks took place, you had a lot of people, uh, you had a lot of press interest, for obvious reasons, and it was conducted in the, to that extent in the open. A lot of the conversations were very quiet and very private, but it was known what was going on yeah. and who was around. Yeah. And yeah. so the value and importance of the back channel is very important, I think, in that context too. But one of the things that it's also a challenge, and I try and draw out in the chapter I've written on Iran, is when you bring the back channel out of the shadows and into the light, the right. joining right. talks that have gone on quietly right. yeah. and yeah. bringing <coughs> them to when be part of the main thing. When everybody discovers that unbeknownst to them, there's another negotiation been going on in the background. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and but whereas people generally understand, uh, and in, in the case of this, really did understand yeah. why, it yeah. was nonetheless a bit of a challenge to kind of merge the two pathways into one, so that you ended up with all of the clever work that had been done by the yeah. team from the US working with the Iranians. I mean, they, they, they'd come up with uh, you know, a good kind of format. There's lots of things yeah. to fill in, yeah. but we had at least uh, the beginnings of a plan yeah. for what the interim agreement would be and what the final agreement would need to contain. Yeah. Even though we had lots of things to fill in, the dots of, of numbers and so on, 
it was a good format. But the merging of that in any negotiation, yes. I think, is one of the big challenges. But, I mean, you're right that everybody talked bilaterally to the Iranians as well, but the US conversations with the Iranians were very, very substantial. They were the most important yes. in that context, yeah. because when you think about it, the, the team of six nations had different perspectives and different relationships with Iran anyway. Yeah. You know, but one of the things that always struck me uh, that was so interesting about it was if you took the spectrum of what was required by each of the six countries to achieve what they would consider a substantive enough agreement, it was different. Mm. And mm. yet all of them stuck together until everybody had what was necessary in their own national terms yeah. to have an agreement that they thought was substantial enough. Well, and this was a regime which had come to um, power on slogans that normally included death to America. So everybody had their own relationship with Iran. I mean, I think the Khomeini um, revolution, they actually carried placards saying death to America. There was no question that the, the American relationship was difficult, but in the context of what was needed for an agreement that could give people confidence that the program was not a program that was going to lead to a nuclear weapon. It was, it was really about the very difficult technical discussions about what was going to happen in locations with particular yeah. Yeah. types of centrifuges and so yeah. on. And the, the, the context of the talks was always going to be about making sure that there was enough satisfaction with what was being proposed such that people could hand on heart say this is a good agreement. I call it the the jigsaw puzzle, Robert. I, I describe yeah. it as you know you put the pieces together and what you yeah. see is a picture and when the picture is complete you should have absolute certainty what it is you're looking at. The size and shape of the pieces become unimportant at the point at which the picture is complete and the trick or the challenge for a negotiation is to make the pieces fit together bearing in mind that you'll get bigger pieces and smaller pieces and pointy pieces and oddly shaped pieces but you don't and mustn't have any gaps between right. them. Well I mean in this case <coughs> in this case there was a um, there was a gap in the sense that there was a concealed Iranian program um, which um, which came to light. But, but um, when the, the agreement was reached, that was no, dealt but with. That was, but that was yeah. dealt with by yeah. then. But that was, there was actually a hole in the jigsaw in the, uh, in the, in the middle. Right, and, um, the, and so the, um, the, the job of the, yeah. uh, of the talks and of the negotiations yeah. and the JCPOA was to fill the jigsaw puzzle in. Yeah. But let's yeah. talk about somewhere else, because you and I spent well, time on that, but I, we I talked mean, about other yes, things. I actually, um, when I, I mentioned the fact that there was a military staff, my memory is that more or less when you arrived, you discovered that you were actually running a military operation, um, a counter piracy operation off Somalia, which must have been a surprise. It was, though I don't think I would claim to be running it. I think that there were some fantastic, responsible for, responsible for it politically, yes, yes, but the people running it were these amazing. Yes. Uh, people led actually from the UK, from Northwood, yes. from the NATO headquarters. They'd given yeah. space to have this mission, which yeah. I think involved 15 or 16 countries. Yes. 
Yes, <coughs> yes, and some, uh, I think the at least there was at least a lot of liaison with non-EU countries Yeah, as well. there was, there was. Uh, I mean, because at that point, you know, countries like the Philippines or indeed Ukraine, an awful lot of the staff on uh, commercial vessels that were trading mm. actually came from countries like the Philippines, yes. from countries like Ukraine. Yes. So they were very engaged because piracy was directly affecting not only yeah. them commercially, but also literally their people were being taken hostage. No, and this was a real, this was a real um, uh, military operation yeah. um, with, with warships, with guns. It, it had, and its purpose was primarily deterrence. Yes. Its purpose was to patrol and create a corridor because yeah. the, the sea was enormous. The pirates were operating by 2010-11, many hundreds of miles away from the shore, yeah. from Somalia, yeah. and had been quite successful in uh, getting... And yes. taking hostage. I mean, they've ships. been successful, but actually, um, this um, this operation was successful too. It was, um, and, and it was brilliantly done yeah. because what they did was create a corridor yes. that, as long as ships remained in yeah. that corridor, yeah. they would be safe. I mean, the yeah. problem was it 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 was not necessarily always the quickest route, um, but it meant that the the ships would make it, and they were able to prevent and deter pirates from operating. I, I have a vivid memory of um, one of the, there are always seminars going on in Brussels, a seminar in Brussels, um, uh, which was talking about, uh, I don't know what it was about, but at any rate, um, uh, one of the British naval officers from Operation Atalanta um, uh, uh, was on the platform, and I hadn't seen him uh, ever before. And I wondered what on earth he was going to say, because um, the British armed services are not necessarily always terrifically pro-EU. Um, uh, and um, so when he got up to speak, he said, well, I've done lots of different naval operations. He's, na naval, he's a lieutenant commander, I think. Um, uh, I've done them for the UN. Uh, I've done them with NATO. Uh, and now I'm doing one with the EU. And I'll tell you this, the EU beats a lot of them. And everybody <laughs> was completely knocked back to hear this from somebody from a, a rather Eurosceptic part of the Eurosceptic country. I think that, that's kind of interesting because my experience of working with the Brits and the British uh, naval and marines who were involved in Atalanta was how much they enjoyed the collaboration between the different countries. Oh, yeah. That, that there was a lot of sharing mm. of ways of working and mm. ideas, which mm. you would get in any yes. kind of NATO yes. exercise and so on. But there was a sort of shared kind of effort that went beyond what the traditional military role would be. So the people in charge of Atalanta were spending time in the region across different nations in parts of Africa, helping and supporting them to look at ways in which they could also deter piracy from their mm. shores, because mm. this was a huge problem. If one remembers back to countries like the Seychelles, where the, yeah. the cruise industry, which had often gone into yes. the Seychelles, was yes. completely gone in that yes. time. Yes. 
yes. because of the fear of pirates. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what in fact what this particularly what this naval officer was talking about was he was talking about um, uh, the way in which um, the EU had been able to deal with prisoners, um, yeah. which uh, none of the other missions had done before, and, and, it and which was actually you personally were involved, I think. That's right. And it, ra well, it raised a very important point, which again is sort of what I've tried to bring across in the book, is that you can't just deal with deterring pirates or arresting pirates at sea no. unless you also deal with the, the before and the after. Mm. And the before was that these largely young men were being offered more money than they could possibly get no. in a country that had been going through a civil war for 20 years. No. Um, and they had no alternatives. So that piracy kind of was an option that we had to find ways of saying it's not an option worth having, and that's both by the fact that they were unsuccessful and that they would be arrested, yeah. but it was also by giving them alternatives on the land. And that if they were captured and they were prosecuted, that we were able to put them in prisons where they would have rehabilitation and training, and given the kind of things that would mean when they came out, that they were better equipped not to go back into that way of life. And also, as you would expect, wanting to give them decent prisons close to home, because a lot of them were young yes. and they had families. Yes. Yes. The Seychelles were at that point, I think 30% of the people in prison in the Seychelles were pirates. Yeah. So being able to provide other um, places, particularly mm. in and around Somalia, mm. where we could house prisoners, but house them in conditions that we would consider appropriate yeah. was really important. So we did look at prisons for the first time. I mean, it didn't, I guess, say in the kind of aid program uh, for Somalia, improve Somali prisons. No. But in practice, that was what aid money was used for. But and, it did, um, and it did a lot of good. But it was, a big it was a big decision to take. And there were plenty of uh, understandable concerns raised about, well, is this the best way to use our money in development and so on? You know, yes. prisons is not actually what people naturally think of when you think about development. You think about jobs, you think about housing, you think mm. about roads and schools, mm. and those are mm. fundamental and core and incredibly important. But in this particular context, yeah. when you're dealing with hundreds of young people, yeah. and some not so young, largely a male population, who are being arrested and prosecuted for crimes in their area, the question is, what are you going to do with them? And how are you going to at least recognise that while they have to pay for the crimes, we also want them to come out of prison with the possibility yes. of doing something else? Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also, it's also one of the things that worked. There is no piracy in that region at the moment. Um, it, it was a... Overall, Operation Atalanta, working with the US, working with all sorts of countries who engaged with us on it, was a success. And more importantly, in a way, the work that we did to try and support Somalia, yeah. uh, and speaking of seminars in Brussels, the big conferences that also take place in Brussels, of which there are plenty, but we had one that was specifically looking at how to support the future of Somalia. Yeah. And the president had this great slogan for young people, which was give up your guns and go to school. 
to try and get underneath the problem that after so many years of chaos, yeah. Yeah. it, it yeah. was important that the next generation got the opportunities to be able to well, be supported. Well, I don't think the chaos has completely gone. No. Um, no. But, the, but the piracy has gone. Um, and it's actually quite rare in, in the world that you have a problem which is kind of solved and finished and over. Well, for now, at least. Yes, for now, yes. Uh, if I could find some uh, wood, I would touch it. The issues that I think are quite important that we remember as well in that yeah. time was that very rare was it that you had issues that we were dealing with consecutively. Yes. That things happened, no, at, the happened at the same time. Yeah. And that was yeah. true when yeah. you think about yes. what was going on in countries right. like Egypt right. or in Libya. Exactly. And what we were doing in terms yeah. of the Western Balkans, the Iran talks and then ultimately what was happening in Ukraine. And you, in particular, you think you'll know what you're going to do next week, um, but it doesn't work out like that. No. Uh, earthquake in Haiti. Um, and um, <coughs> um, you were at least partly responsible for, for delivery of aid there. Well, the, the earthquake happened, as we know, I, I was woken early morning, uh, and I'd not long been in office. In fact, it was the day after my parliamentary hearing, that the earthquake happened. Um, and More or less your first day then? More or less the first, yes, you could argue yes. the first day. I think yeah. I've kind of been around a bit, but, but certainly the first day after that big yes. event in Parliament. Yeah. And trying to establish and work out with colleagues in the Commission, Kristalina Georgieva, uh, now head of uh, the IMF, but then the Commissioner with responsibility for trying to pull all of the commission work together was amazing. She mm. did a fantastic mm. job. Mm. What we were doing was sort of working on the member yeah. state side because yeah. one of the things that happens in a crisis and a disaster is that you need a coordination so that everybody doesn't provide the yes. same things. Yes. Yes. And in a country that was as impoverished as Haiti, that was really important. It was, if you remember, Port-au-Prince was flattened. Yes. 95% yes. destroyed yes. in parts of it. And I no. can recall flying over, no. looking for the 5% and being unable to find it in parts yes. of it. Well, and including city. a lot of the people who'd been delivering aid there, uh, the UN mission there. That's uh, right. There actually was a meeting yes. go on, going on at the UN headquarters no. that had been discussing no. how to support uh, future aid and development for Haiti led by the UN, the EU representatives were there, and they were all killed. Yes, yes, yeah. But I contrast that, of course, with what was happening to, when I went two years later, to, to Fukushima, to Fukushima and yes. to Japan, yeah. which of course the, the, the dreadful earthquake and tsunami that, that occurred. And you see even there, that even in countries which have very advanced technologically, yeah. have built with earthquakes in mind because it's yes. a country that yes. suffers earthquakes, yeah. are very organised, have resources, yes. have money. Yeah. Even though it was eight months after the earthquake, you still saw the after effects and the consequences of that in huge swathes of the country. And I found that almost more worrying or, or concerning in the sense that you realise the length of time it takes to get back and for people to be able to, uh, if they ever can, go back to the communities that they want to go back to. 
Yes, well, at least in the era of, uh, in, in Fukushima, I think the land in some places is, is no longer there. Uh, the land's no longer there, and also um, the, some of the areas where they grew rice, yes. the uh, land is salt water now. Yes. Yes. And so they, a lot yes. of things won't grow. So what I, what I saw was lots of areas where, uh, in a sense, people are going to have to move quite a long way from where they, they were. Or indeed, as you rightly say, the coastline is different because of it. Yes. So, it, I mean, the, the Japanese have done an amazing job. Yes. But nonetheless, eight months later, they were still clearing up. No, even eight months, yes. It was, it was actually, I think it was, it was it's more like three years or something like that yeah. before... And it, that's um, fascinating to me because, you know, these events happen and then they disappear from the news. Yes. And then they reappear. And then it still goes on. And, but it still goes on. And if you um, look at Haiti now and the chaos and trouble, and it's had, of course, more disasters well, since then. The, yes. I mean, but they've... <coughs> um, uh, well, they've had a lot of chaos in Haiti, I think, more or less since the, you know, since the first the slave revolution um, in the 19th century. It's gone on ever since. But this idea that everything was happening sort yeah. of at the same time is, is important because, of course, Ukraine, um, the crisis yeah. that, that began in 2013, yeah. was at exactly the, the points at which we were also engaged with the Iran negotiations and with the Serbia-Kosovo dialogue. All of these events were... Uh, yes, I at mean, same time. Do, you're right to mention both of those things because the first of all, the Serbia-Kosovo dialogue, um, the uh, the negotiation that you you did between Serbia and Kosovo, that um, created the possibility at least of a um, association of Serb municipalities. I think still to me looks like the best solution that one could find. Um, I think if there is going to be a solution to that, that's going to be, that's going to be part of it. Um, and uh, the other thing, of course, that, that you actually end the book with is the, um, the talks about uh, an EU-Ukraine agreement at the time. Um, it seems a very long time ago now. It does. I mean, yeah. th the interesting thing about Serbia and Kosovo was that this was a a terrific example of the pull of the EU yes. that the nations that form the Western Balkans and particularly this in this context Serbia and Kosovo saw the possibility of becoming part of the EU as the the prize for making what were mm. really tough decisions on both sides to begin mm. a process mm. of normalization mm. we're a long way from that and probably further today than we've been for a long time Yes, um, you're right, but at the time, um, there, was mo there was real momentum. Absolutely right. Th yes. There was a real momentum yeah. to do that. But it was that, that sort of promise that yes. was so important. Yes. And the feeling that, in the end, all yeah. being part of the EU was going to be more important because of what it would offer in terms of economic and political stability yeah. and growth that, that was so important to them. Actually... Um, that, I mean, there's, a, there's been a strong element of that with Ukraine as well. Um, one of the things that happened with Ukraine, which doesn't, I don't know if it gets into the history books, but Ukraine um, did a joint, uh, they ran the cup, the UEFA 
Football Cup um, jointly with Poland, after Poland had joined the EU. Um, and when Ukrainians went to Poland, which was now an EU member and was part of the common agricultural policy and so on, they saw a different, completely different country. Yeah. And this was one of the things which um, suddenly switched the Ukrainians on to joining the EU. And this was um, certainly behind the, um, the negotiations that were at that point for a, um, uh, an association agreement with the EU. That's right, um, that's right. I mean, the, 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 you know, the expectation had been that after seven years of negotiation, the association agreement, which contains a huge trade element in, yeah. in it, it's hugely important for a country that yeah. has such a, a capacity to be the breadbasket, as, as it's often described, um, and also in technology and yes. other areas where the country yes. was moving forward. For Ukraine, there was a real opportunity in the context of being well, closer linked. Yes, but, but if, you went to the, if you went to the Maidan, you saw as many European flags as uh, Ukrainian flags. Um, I know because somebody took one of my, I had a flag in my office, which some of the young people decided they were going to go and join the demonstrations and took this with them. But there were lots of European flags there. It was the reason that I gave when I went to Ukraine, just as the demonstrations began, to go and visit Maidan, that actually, as, as the representative of the EU, it was important to go and see what was going on because, as you rightly say, in the square, there were lots and lots of EU flags because for many people in Ukraine, the idea of this closer relationship, not for everyone were they thinking about membership by a long way. No at that no, point, somewhere. No, but that was the direction they wanted to go. The direction was yes. much closer yes. to Europe, one way no. or the other, for many people. Yeah. And wanting that relationship with the EU was something that they thought would give them better economic opportunity, and yes. your point about yes. what people had seen in Poland. But I also think there was a sort of wanting to be a strong country in Europe and to see themselves, for many of the young people particularly, as a European nation. Yes. That was important. Yes. Yes, well, part of Ukraine was, after all, part of the Habsburg uh, Empire. There's a Habsburg legacy there as well. Also, it's an attractive flag, I think, this, uh, the blue background on the gold stars. I think it looks good. Yeah, I'm not sure the flag made such a difference, but certainly for those waving it, yes. they felt there was a yeah. kind of affinity to it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the, the important part of this is that this had been a relationship that had been building for a number of years. It wasn't yeah. something that came out of no, nowhere. No, no. And I think that for us all in 2013 was where the surprising part of what happened in Ukraine came yes. from. Well, actually, I mean, they've also, in the Ukrainian administration, uh, they've been quite serious about it. Yeah. Um, because they've been adapting themselves to European standards for quite a long time now, um, without the Commission telling them to do it. But they've said, well, if we're going to, if we're going to kind of um, uh, modernise our whatever it is industry, let's modernise it to European standards so that one day when we're in the single market, there will be no problem licensing this. Yeah, I think uh, the the so, so the pull of yeah it's a rather distant trial yeah. membership has been a real factor, I think, in what's happened in Ukraine 
yeah. over the last, not just the last year, but over the last 20 years. And that plays into this point about the, about the pull of what the EU means for countries yes. who see it as a way of developing economically, which is really yeah. important, but also developing, I think, in terms of the democracy and the, yes. the kind of everything from yes. anti-corruption through to a better yeah. bureaucracy. The idea of being Europe is an attractive idea. <laughs> there are even people in Britain who think that. <laughs> there are two things that strike me about the book. Um, uh, the first is actually, it's fantastically interesting. And um, the descriptions you give of your conversations um, are wholly believable. Um, but what strikes me about them is that basically um, you're extremely straightforward. You don't, um, you're, no doubt you soften it a bit, but actually you're pretty frank with everybody. Um, and uh, when I read that, I think of a remark that Kissinger makes. Actually, several times he says this. Um, it's um, uh, the people who are most difficult to deal with are the straightforward ones. <laughs> the ones who are trying to be very clever and subtle, uh, they're very easy to deal with. Um, it's the ones who are straight that, you've, uh, that give you trouble. Well, I wonder if I was as straightforward when I was talking to people. I don't know, but, but I think... Yeah, but you're pretty blunt often, actually. I, I think it's important to be clear yes. and to be yes. honest blunt is probably the wrong and straightforward. Word. Clear, but um, And direct, yes. because direct. you yes. want to know yeah. the answer to the question. Yes, and actually, um, uh, people only respect you if you say what you think. The second thing about the, uh, uh, about the book that I wanted to mention um, is the title, because I think it's an extremely good title. Um, and then what? It sounds weird, but um, whatever you do in foreign policy, it's never the end. Um, well, should I explain where it comes yes, from? Do. Because yes. I think um, when we were dealing with so many different issues and yeah. I talk about seven different issues in the book, seven related to particular places, but there were many more. Yes. Um, I always tried to get the conversations we had between ministers or officials, whatever, to think about, and then what? Because you could think about your next action. You yeah. could think about what do we have to do yeah. to avert or to deal with something that's happening. But then what? Because there are consequences, yeah. whatever you do, there are consequences of doing nothing, there are consequences of any action that you might take. And, and then what became yeah. my kind of catchphrase. Right, and the end of one story is also the beginning of another. Um, and you have to have some idea of what's coming after. If too often, I think, when we look at issues or crises or problems that are bubbling up, we have to think pretty short term. Um, and there is always a question of how governments that are by their nature, often short term, yeah. deal with problems that are going to be with us for a long time and need long term solutions. The most yeah. obvious example right now is climate change, yes. where we've known for a long time the challenges if we were going to face. We've known for a long time that we have to come up with solutions short and long term. 
and yet it's tough and difficult to get people together to do that. And That's and then what? Yes, and it's never over. Um, you may have, we may have dealt with the pirates in Somalia, but Somalia's still got lots of other troubles. Right, um, and unless you think, if you go back to piracy, it's a good example, you know, we can capture pirates, we can deter pirates, and then what? Yes. And, uh, you know, what's yes. to stop this yeah. just continuing as, as a problem? Yeah. So that's where that comes from. So I end uh, the book, as you know, with the, this point about being first and last. Uh, and it, it's true that as a woman of my generation, I'm really used to being the first. I was the first woman in my family to go to ah, university. Right. Yeah. I was the first woman trade commissioner, the first woman Britain ever sent to Brussels as a commissioner. But I was also, as things stand, the last woman that Britain sent to Brussels as a commissioner. And while I'm used to being the first, it's the first time that I've been the last, which is in its own way a kind of first. On behalf of the RSA, I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in to watch today. And of course, thank you to our wonderful speakers, Catherine and Robert, for that fascinating conversation. Catherine's new book, And Then What, is out on the 2nd of February. You can pre-order the book now, and the RSA have provided a special discount code for anyone buying the book through foils. Both the link to the book and the code is appearing in the live chat as we speak, and that code is FOILSRSA20. Thank you again to all our viewers and listeners. If you'd like to find out more about the RSA and how to get involved in their growing global fellowship community, you can find out more at thersa.org. Thank you all for watching and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.